0: Well, hello again, FAC, Pastor Mike here. If you've got your Bible nearby, I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter eight. We're gonna be in verses 26 through 40, and we're gonna finish the chapter today. Uh, Before I read that, though, a quick word of prayer for our time. Lord, now in this moment, I pray as we look to your word for guidance that you would conform our minds to reflect your desire and your will. Lord, you use this time to draw us nearer to you, to make us look more like Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in your Son's precious and holy name I pray, amen. Many of you watching know that I used to be the youth pastor here at at FAC, and one of my favorite trips that we would take our students to was an event uh, called Lead the Cause, this trip would equip our students and challenge them with the task of personal evangelism. A typical day of this trip consisted of some um, classroom time in the morning, core training, if you will, when our students would be trained how to evangelize. Uh, in some strategies, and then um, we would bring them out in the afternoon to the streets of Chicago where we would uh, encourage them to share the gospel with complete strangers. And it was great because you could just, as, as we were driving out to these locations, you could just see the terror on their faces. Obviously, this was quite an intimidating and fearful prospect for them. To the point that our students would be very selective with which strangers that they would speak to and who could blame them. Uh, On one occasion, there was a uh, one of my girl students engaged in a conversation with a young woman who actually happened to already be a believer. And as the woman spoke, she actually encouraged my student uh, explaining that she didn't have the courage to do anything like that. She was much too fearful to try what she was doing. And you know, at that point, the student had said, well, you know, i try to approach the people that look nice. I'm careful with who I go and talk to. And uh, the woman proceeded to point to a man sitting on a bench and basically said, yeah, I wouldn't go and talk to that guy because he looks pretty angry and unfriendly. Well, my student responded to that comment with laughter because the angry, unfriendly-looking man on the bench was me. I was probably just hungry. I don't know. For those students, though, who truly embraced this uh, exercise of personal evangelism, those faces of terror would often be transformed into faces of joy. It was one of the most rewarding experiences for me as a youth pastor to see students who are young in their faith uh, lean into God's strength and assurance and embrace personal evangelism, embrace sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. As we've worked through Acts this year, I've been um, hounding us as a church to be missional, Uh, It is a community. We, We want to embrace the role that FAC can play in God's great story of letting the world know who Jesus is. And since we have begun this journey in Acts since the beginning of the year, many members of the church have come up to me and they've said, Pastor Mike, I'm sold on this. I'm in. I want a part of this. I want to participate. I want to tell my friends and family about Jesus. I want to evangelize but I just don't know how. How do I do this? If you are sincere in your desire to evangelize, but you simply don't know how, this passage that we're about to read is an excellent story that you could use almost as a training guide. The story that we're about to read is unique because to this point in Acts, up until this point, We've only seen mass conversion come as a result of someone preaching to large crowds. Whereas this story is the very first instance of personal one-on-one evangelism in the book of Acts. Perhaps you've been tracking with us and you've been studying the first eight chapters with us and you're saying, how on earth can I do something like this? How can I preach to the masses? Because God maybe hasn't given me the gift of communication or God hasn't given me the people that will actually listen to me in large crowds. Um, But as you read this passage, I hope it will hit closer to home for you. This one should be extremely practical for you. And so we're going to take a practical look. There's actually an evangelist named Michael Green who believes that the primary reason Luke includes this story of Philip and the Ethiopian was to teach and emphasize the value of personal one-on-one evangelism and to give guidelines on how it should be done. And so what I'd like to do uh, with our time today is to walk through this story explain what's happening in its context here, and then provide four principles for uh, that we can glean from this passage about evangelism, four guiding characteristics, if you will, uh, of evangelism. And so let's look at the text together. Starting in verse 26, we will read through the end of the chapter. It says this, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road. uh, As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, uh, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. First, we find that an angel of the Lord uh, instructs Philip to get up and go toward the south to a road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke writes that this is a desert place. Now, that sentence, that this is a desert place, isn't actually describing the region, but more specifically, it's describing the road. The road is a desert place. The, the, there really isn't much on this road. This isn't Peach Street where every square inch is covered in retail and restaurants. No, this is, uh, this road described in, in the text is more like a old country road that you would find down in Cambridge Springs. So there's just not much going on there, right? And so read this in context and you can see that God is up to something very strange. Because the last time we saw Philip, He's actually in a Samaritan village, a very heavy populated area where people are coming to know Jesus left and right, right? His ministry is just hopping. And then all of a sudden, God calls Philip away from this thriving area to go down to a desolate road where you would even be fortunate to find people, let alone ministry opportunities. The skeptic would look at this and say, how odd is it that God would uh, take Philip from a thriving ministry to a desert place, to a rural road where he's not even going to find anybody. Um, This reminds me of a little bit of a history from First Alliance. If you're familiar with our history, you'll know that our church actually used to meet in uh, a building on West 11th Street, right in the middle of downtown Erie. Uh, We enjoyed ministry there for over 50 years. But then in the 70s, FAC moved to its current location on Zimmerle Road. At that time, this area uh, was a desolate place. There was nothing. It, this area was nothing but an empty field. Right there, there was no Mill Creek Mall. There were no developed neighborhoods. There was nothing. It was a remote road. No, I wasn't there at the time, but I would imagine that there'd be some naysayers who, who would say, why on earth would we move out of this city into the middle of a field? What kind of ministry is there? But as I've spoken to some faithful FAC attenders uh, who were there, the overall consensus is that our people were excited, and they were full of faith that that God would have uh, plenty of ministry prepared for us, and little did they know the amazing ministry that God had prepared in advance for FAC right here on Zimmerli Road. Um, Their faith, our people's faith, uh, represented kind of how Philip approaches this, right? Without uh, even a question, Philip follows God's leading and gets up and goes. This is such an ambiguous call for Philip. There is no elaboration, right? There is no further instruction in the call. It's just get up and go to this old country road. Philip has no idea what to expect. He he He's being sent to a place with no people, but he still obeys God. He doesn't ask for clarification, no full of faith. He just goes. But sure enough, in verse 27, we read that there was a man on the road. And that phrase, and there was, loses a little bit of emphasis in translation. You could actually replace, and there was, with the popular phrase, lo and behold, there was a man. The, the emphasis here is that Philip is surprised to see somebody is actually traveling down this desert road. You know, there's this level of shock here. Philip isn't expecting to see anything, and to his surprise, there's somebody there. What seemed to be a deserted road, devout of any ministry work, now, in God's sovereignty, presents an opportunity for Philip. And it comes in the form of an Ethiopian. This is the only place where this Ethiopian is mentioned in scripture, but from these verses alone, there's several things that we can uh, know about him, uh, given the details. Uh, First, we know that he was rich and that he was powerful uh, because he was a court official uh, in charge of the treasure of the queen of of the Ethiopians. We also know that he was wealthy enough to own his own copy of the uh, prophet Isaiah, which would not have been easy to obtain in those times. Second, we know that he was some kind of adherent to Judaism. He's returning from Jerusalem, and it specifically says in verse 27 that he's returning from Jerusalem where he worshipped. And not, not only that, he's reading Isaiah, a jewish prophet this means that he is either what we would call a diaspora jew basically he has a jewish heritage uh that uh, whose families were dispersed from israel several several centuries prior or this ethiopian is what we would call a proselyte a proselyte it would be a non-jewish person who has converted to judaism This is the second thing we can know about this Ethiopian. And finally, the most obvious one of that is that this man was Ethiopian. He's from the country of Ethiopia. Now, this is not where modern-day Ethiopia is. In ancient times, the region of Ethiopia is actually located in the central part of modern-day Sudan, which is south of Egypt. Now this is significant because this Ethiopian, as one commentator puts it, is a very strong representation of foreignness in a Jewish context. Ancient literature would actually um, regard Ethiopia as the edge of the known world. And so once again, let me draw your attention back to that famous verse that I've mentioned several times, Acts 1.8, when Jesus is commissioning his disciples. And what does he say to his disciples? He says, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you're a disciple sitting under Jesus' teaching and sitting under his commissioning in that first century, and somebody asks you to identify the end of the earth, one of the places that you would say is Ethiopia. If you're one of the disciples, you're saying Ethiopia is the is the ends of, of the earth. We need to get the gospel to Ethiopia. And if you're one of the disciples at the time, you're thinking, well, that was easy mission accomplished right we've we've evangelized successfully uh, an Ethiopian but how awesome is it to sit here two thousand years later and recognize that our god's plan and our god's mission is far beyond what we can even fathom that his reach and his desire to draw creation back to him is far greater and expands far uh, further and larger than we can even imagine. You see, for the disciples, in their own human understanding of the world around them, they would potentially believe that they've gone to the ends of the earth. But we know, reading this in hindsight, that God's plan is far grander and that the end of the earth is much more vast. This is a beautiful reminder for us to recognize the vastness of God's plan, even beyond our own understanding. Yes, we do have a wider scope of what God had in mind than the disciples, but how much wider of a scope is there that we may not even be aware of in our own understanding of the world? We do get a flavor for God's mission here in this story as Philip comes across this rich man from Ethiopia in the most unlikely of places. And as Philip uh, comes to the road, he's led to approach the chariot. The Spirit tells him to go, and he sees, he actually hears that the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah. He's most likely reading out loud. That was just custom. And Philip, being Jewish, is well-read in the prophet, and he would know exactly what the Ethiopian was reading. And so he asks a simple question. Do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand what you are reading? Now, I want to stop here for a second because there's so much that we can learn from Philip in how he begins this gospel conversation. You'll notice that he doesn't come in guns ablazing. He doesn't come in on a soapbox with a bullhorn. He doesn't come in with pointing fingers. No, he begins tactfully by asking a simple question. Do you understand what you are reading? When we took our students to lead the cause, and their core trainers taught them a strategy for engaging people in conversations. And every single one of those students would be able to tell you that the first step in engaging an unbelieving person in a gospel conversation is to ask good questions. Ask good questions. Because we have to remember our goal is not to come in with an airtight gospel presentation. We aren't here to make presentations. Our goal is not to have gospel co- uh, presentations, but instead have gospel conversations. And, and in even in order to have um, effective gospel conversations, we need to start where they are in their understanding. And the way that we start where they are in their understanding is to ask good, engaging questions. We also need to earn the right to speak. And the best way to do this is to be quick to listen and hear them out first. You'll actually find that Jesus practiced this. Uh, This was a practice that he used regularly. He asked good questions, engaging questions. If you were to turn to Mark chapter 8, you would find that actually Jesus asked 16 questions in Mark chapter 8 alone, and they were all to engage with people. When we ask engaging questions, good questions, and truthfully listen to their answers, we are tearing down natural walls that separate us between non-believers and we build bridges that they may be willing to cross. And once we have built the bridge, once we hear them out, once we have, have their respect, once we understand where they are, where their understanding is, then we can gently guide them across the bridge to where we hope they will go in understanding. Philip starts from where the Ethiopian is and then uses that as a launching pad. And the Ethiopian responds with another question, how can I unless someone guides me? Philip can't ask for a better invitation to engage in a gospel conversation than that. In baseball slang, we would call that a meatball. This is a pitch that comes right down the center of the plate that's just asking you to slug it over the outfield wall. It's an easy pitch to hit. Philip is at the plate, and the Ethiopian pitches him a meatball in the form of this question, how can I unless someone guides me? And that word guide that he uses is a term to describe someone uh, leading someone else to another place. It would be like you guiding a blind person or guiding someone in unfamiliar territory. In a sense, the Ethiopian is openly admitting that he doesn't understand the passage, but he is eager to have understanding and he is eager to have someone come along him and guide him to wisdom and understanding. The Ethiopian does not want to live in ignorance. He truly has a heart to understand and receive. And so Philip guides him in the understanding of Scripture, and he explains that this passage from Isaiah is really pointing to Jesus. In all reality, the portion of Scripture quoted in Acts chapter 8 was not the only part of the passage that they discussed, That quoted portion actually comes from Isaiah 53, verse 7. And that was probably the portion that Philip heard the Ethiopian reading as he approached the chariot. However, as they discussed the passage, their attention would have been drawn to the entirety of Isaiah 53. And so we have to understand their conversation revolves around a wider context of Isaiah 53. Which makes perfect sense, because if you go and read Isaiah 53, which I would encourage you to do for homework on your own, you'll find that that chapter lends itself perfectly to gospel conversation. And to summarize, Isaiah 53, the prophet describes a man who is despised and rejected by mankind. That This man was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed... Uh, But specifically, he was pierced for mankind's transgressions. He was crushed for mankind's iniquities. It says that God laid our iniquities, our wickedness, our sin on this man. And our peace and our healing, our restoration, if you will, are brought about because this man suffered. And so you can see how easy it would be for Philip to connect the dots for this Ethiopian and tell him that this passage is actually about Jesus who was put on the cross and carried the penalty for our sin in our place. One commentator writes that there is no one else in history apart from Jesus of Nazareth to whom these words can truly be applied. Through Philip's careful exposition of Isaiah 53 and his guidance, the Ethiopian believes and in true obedience pursues baptism. Now, as a side note, we could spend an entire sermon uh, looking at that topic, the subject of baptism. And one of these Sundays, I'll do it. But there is a quick lesson to learn here from the Ethiopian in regards to baptism. Baptism. The pattern of baptism in Scripture that is put forward is that when one becomes a believer in Jesus, they are baptized right away. They are baptized immediately. For whatever reason, in our context, our modern context, the assumption among many believers is that baptism is only for the spiritual elite. That baptism is somehow only reserved for those who have attained some sort of spiritual status with God or a deeper understanding of God, but this couldn't be further from the truth. Baptism is not some sort of finish line in the walk with Jesus. We find in Scripture that it's actually the starting line, that when you trust and believe in Jesus, you get baptized. So if you are a believer and have not been baptized yet, I have a serious question for you. And it's actually the same question that the Ethiopian asks in verse 36. What prevents you from being baptized? The Ethiopian understands the gospel. He sees water and he finds no good nor logical reason for why he shouldn't be baptized. So once again, I ask you, if you are a believer and have not taken this step of obedience... What prevents you from being baptized? It's a legitimate, legitimate question that I would encourage you to think about. Uh, after the Ethiopian is baptized, uh, Philip, we are told, is then led by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel elsewhere. That's the explanation of the story as a whole. It's pretty straightforward and easy to understand and uh, I see four principles in this passage that are foundational to personal evangelism. Uh, The first, we see that evangelism is always spirit-led. The Holy Spirit's fingerprints uh, is um, over this entire passage. In verse 26, an angel of the Lord called Philip to go to this deserted road, which could be synonymous with the Spirit's leading. In verse 29, the Holy Spirit calls Philip over to the chariot. And finally, in verse 39 and 40, the Spirit comes and draws Philip away with the specific purpose of proclaiming the gospel in another region. Um, Even in the last instance, when it says that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, the emphasis is on the Spirit's forceful direction of Philip. Now, this may have been a supernatural event, but it could have also happened just by natural means. It doesn't really matter. The point is that in this moment, the Spirit seized Philip. He took hold of Philip and moved him to a new place. If I'm walking in public uh, with my family and I want my children to go a certain direction, I will take hold of them. I will grab their hands and guide them where I need them to go, right? And depending on how good of listeners that they are on that particular day will determine how much force I need to use, I am not afraid to haul my son over my shoulder if I need to get him to a certain place. And this is the picture that we get of the Spirit seizing Philip. When we desire and seek to evangelize, the Spirit will provide opportunities. He will provide what I call on-ramps to gospel conversations. And we will never engage in such conversations unless we are attentively looking for the on-ramps, unless we are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I guarantee you that the Spirit will open doors for gospel conversations because it's in his very nature, it's in his very character to do so. Uh, But it's our responsibility to walk through that door, to take the on-ramp which is the second principle, the second uh, foundational guideline I see or characteristic I see in this passage, in that personal evangelism relies on our obedience. Look at all the places that Philip is obedient to the Spirit. In verse 27, Philip is instructed to go to the desert road. He gets up and goes, no questions asked. In verse 29 Philip is instructed to go to the chariot and Philip not only approaches the chariot but he actually runs to the chariot. He's enthusiastic to obey. I believe it would be a rather intimidating uh, it would be intimidating to approach a wealthy foreign dignitary yet Philip obeys. We often miss out on witnessing opportunities because we are not obedient to the spirit's leading. The summer of my freshman year of high school, I wrote a letter to a friend of mine, and I told him about Jesus in that letter. And with the letter, I included a gospel tract. It was, it was, uh, called Knowing God Personally. And later on in that summer, I was going on a week-long vacation with this friend of mine and his family. And I brought along a copy of that uh, gospel tract with me because I was I was determined to follow up on my letter uh, and tell my friend about Jesus in person. As I, as I brought the gospel tract along, I, I, I prayed constantly through the week for the Spirit to give me an on-ramp. At one point during the trip, I picked up my book bag and the gospel tract fell out. And my friend saw it on the floor. And he said, Hey, didn't you, didn't you send me one of those? Talk about an on-ramp. I wouldn't get a better opportunity than that. Yet I picked up the tract. I stuffed it back into my book bag. And I simply said, yeah, I did. And then I said nothing more. That is a moment that has been etched into my mind ever since. And I live with a sense of conviction of my own disobedience. Disobedience. Follow the Spirit's leading and take the on ramp. I think at the time I didn't obey because I didn't feel as though I had a firm understanding of Scripture, that I didn't know the answers, which is the third principle I see in this passage. Uh, Personal evangelism always has scriptural foundation. It is always rooted in Scripture. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to open up the Bible or even quote the Bible word for word every time you witness to somebody, but it does mean that the words of your mouth must be grounded in Scripture, must be based on the Bible, that the ideas we convey must spring from Scripture. In verse 35, it specifically says that when Philip opened his mouth, he began with Scripture, specifically Isaiah 53. His entire witness here is based on scriptural truth. Even Jesus, when teaching people about himself, would teach himself from the Old Testament scriptures. Look to Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus. Luke, uh, Jesus is walking and speaking with two people, and during the walk, uh, in verse 27, Jesus says, or sorry, um, Luke writes, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus taught from scripture. We cannot discredit the centrality of God's word in everything we do, including evangelism. And the wonderful thing about grounding our gospel conversations in scripture is that every page of scripture really points to one man And that man is Jesus, which brings us to this final principle, the final characteristic of evangelism. Evangelism always gets to Jesus. Jesus is the final destination that we should strive for in our conversations with unbelievers. Once again in verse 35 Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There's a famous quote that is um, famously misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He he didn't actually say this, but the quote goes, uh, Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. It's very clever and it's very trendy, but it's actually not biblical. Because when preaching the gospel, eventually, like Philip, you have to open your mouth and use words to tell the good news of Jesus. Evangelism, in the purest and simplest form, by definition, is the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul gets at this in Romans ten fourteen when he writes, How then will they call on him, being Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Don't fool yourself. You actually have not evangelized unless you communicate the gospel message unless you communicate that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf, and Jesus died a sinner's death on our behalf, and that he is resurrected on our behalf. In 1871, D.L. Moody was preaching a series in Chicago on the life of Jesus. And specifically on October 8th, he was preaching in Farwell Hall, So, the largest crowd of people he had ever addressed in Chicago. And at the end of his sermon, he said, What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sabbath, next Sunday, next week, we will come to Calvary and the cross and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. That very evening, the city burned to the ground in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Just mere hours after Moody ended his preaching, Farwell Hall laid in ashes, and he would never see that same crowd again. This absolutely traumatized Moody Um, On the disaster's 22-year anniversary, Moody took the pulpit once again in Chicago to preach what has now been called his fire sermon. Uh, In this sermon, Moody identified that night, 22 years ago, as a turning point in how he preached. Uh, Take a look at what his reflection was on in that moment. This is what he said. What a mistake. I have never dared to give an audience a week to think of their salvation since. If they were lost, they might rise up in judgment against me. I have never seen that congregation since. I have worked hard to keep back the tears today. I want to tell you one lesson I learned that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there. I would rather have my right hand cut off than to give an audience now a week to decide what to do with Jesus. With that, I would be completely negligent if I didn't urge you to consider Jesus. Perhaps, as we've studied this passage, you come to find yourself not in Philip's position, but rather in the position of the Ethiopian, You identify more with the Ethiopian, one who's truly seeking to understand, one who is open to the teaching of God's word, and one who's saying, how can I understand unless someone guides me? If that's you, in this moment, would you consider following the Ethiopian's pattern and following Jesus? And please, if you're sitting there asking the question, how can I understand unless someone guides me, would you please... Connect with us so that we can help you and take you gently by the hand and walk you in understanding to know who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would instill a passion in our hearts to see the lost be found through the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you equip us in all that we need to be messengers of the greatest message there is, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. In your Son's holy name we pray. Amen.